put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, the story of the trumpet and the words of those who play it. I am James Newcomb, coming into your earballs, and this is a interview that I've been looking forward to for quite a while. What can we say about Chris Gecker, man that needs no introduction, although I'm going to introduce him anyway. Find him on the web at chrisgeckertrumpet.com. He's the professor at University of Maryland, and it's easier to say what he hasn't done on the trumpet than what he has done. So we're just going to shoot the breeze here for a little while and talk trumpet, talk life, and see how the two intertwine. So welcome, man. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure to see you again. Yes, sir. And actually, Chris and I met up. He's in North Carolina for the Eastern Music Festival. And actually, Chris and I met each other four years ago in 2017 when I was doing a series of interviews called Secrets of the Musical Mind. A really, really good, very deep talk that we had. And I highly recommend that you listen to it. It is available on my mobile app. It's not available on the web that I'm aware of. But if you go to jamesnewcombontrumpet.com slash app, that'll get you access to the app. And there's the interview with Chris and just a plethora of really great trumpet players. And there's just a lot of content on the app. So shameless plug for myself. But Chris, get us up to speed. What is going on in North Carolina? Well, uh, this is my 10th summer at the Eastern Music Festival. Of course, like the rest of the world, we were off last summer. Yes. It was a rough year for everybody, and for many people, far worse than rough. So I'm, when I talk about how nice it is to play in person again, believe me that I remember everybody who's lost loved ones and the hardship that the, the year has been for working people, for students, uh, Let's remember our healthcare workers. Uh, goes on and on. Having said that, I University of Maryland was very strict during the pandemic. Uh, March fifteenth of the year that the shutdown happened, we were all sent home and not allowed to teach the the following year. I was we were all off campus. I taught a very strenuous schedule, but all online. And it was only the following May of uh, two thousand twenty one that I came back on campus. Hmm heard some of my students for the first time in person, which was wow. a real something. I, I, it was funny to hear them uh, play their juries. I'd heard them all year uh, over the computer. And while I'm very grateful for the technology we have, it, nothing can replace hearing someone live. So that was a real pleasure. And they did all great. They did so much hard work this year, and I really commend them for their uh, application and industry. Teaching online was uh, 
a real challenge, uh, but we persevered. The, the weekly studio classes were actually quite interesting because being online, we had a lot of, uh, the class slowly grew over the years. So we had people from overseas and all around the country joining us. And that was a plus side of this uh, twist in our uh, right. history, so to speak. Anyway, um, in the Washington, D.C. area, things started opening up in late April. Uh, my wife and I played a, a jazz concert an out, at an outdoor thing. It was the first live thing we had played. Uh, it was first live uh, audience, this audience, the first event they had been going to. The uh, emotions were running quite high. We did a lot of early traditional jazz. We opened up with uh, Ball and the Jack, the old Louis Armstrong hit, and, and went on from there. And it was a tremendous experience. And since then, uh, in the D.C. area, a, a, a variety of things. I did a solo recital in Baltimore, trumpet and organ, which was, fi which was filmed and uh, recorded. You can get it on YouTube. It's called Music at Emmanuel. And you put, if you put Gecker on, it'll get you right to that. Uh, we uh, filmed and recorded an opera. Uh, Stravinsky Listoire to Sold Out was uh, oh. done several times for Sold Out audiences. I mean, audiences were quite quite eager. Often it reduced capacity, but there were the tickets would be immediately sold out, which was nice to see. And interesting that the origin of Stravinsky's Listoire was right after World War One, when the world was also going through a pandemic of the Spanish flu. So it was mm -hmm. kind of a curious historical resonance there. Anyway. The Eastern Music Festival had planned to be back in person, but it, it originally under quite strict uh, protocols of reduced activity and such. But the week before we showed up, uh, a lot of the restrictions lifted. So we've been totally in person, teaching and performing. It's been a very intense. This is the fifth week. The uh, University of Maryland is, is intending to start in person. Of course, now we're starting to get some news that... that we have to keep our fingers crossed and uh, see what happens. Uh, none of us want to take a step backwards, but of course, we just have to try to do what's best for everybody, and, and I guess we'll see what happens. I've heard many stories similar to what you just described of, first of all, you come back from a long layoff, uh, and, and like there's just this darth of live music. It's The only music you can get is online. Thank goodness for the technology that allows it, but... People get back in around other people and listening to live music again. It just, I think just people just made them realize, not that they took it for granted before, but they just realized, I really, really missed this and I really need this. You're so correct, James. And the uh, intensity is viscerally felt both on stage and, and the energy coming from the audience for sure. Not only that, but also, like you said, there were some hidden blessings, I guess you'd call them, that manifested because of the restrictions, such as people joining your studio from overseas that ordinarily, maybe before the pandemic, they wouldn't have had the opportunity. Right. My, 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 wake, my weekly studio class at Maryland is, you know, in a room with people at school. And, and we do uh, have some occasionally guests and uh, visitors, actually quite frequently, but all in the D.C. area. And, and because of the, the technology, we could get guests from far, far away. It was, and they contributed a lot. It was really exciting. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of hybrid of live and technology emerges in the next 10 years. And say what you will about the, the pandemic and the reaction to it, but um, it did highlight some of the ways that technology can be, can be utilized. Every person I ask on this podcast, I want to hear their story, their history. I want to know what 
got you interested in the trumpet first, like you're a kid, you get into it. What, what got you started on it? Well, I went to public school. I was, I was born in Washington, D.C. and raised in Alexandria, Virginia. In the fourth grade in the public school, they would bring the instruments around and show them to everybody. We knew that day was coming, and as a little boy, for some reason, I liked to say the word clarinet. For some reason, that, that word kind of was fun to say. But then we all went to a concert, and pretty much all I could hear were the trumpets, so I, that decided me. <laughs> uh, I took to it quickly. Uh, I had great band directors uh, in Alexandria. A couple, Jack Dallinger and Roy Smith, were wonderful trumpet players themselves. And then also living in the D.C. area, I grew up listening to military bands. Um, mm. the, uh, the Watergate in those days was actually a floating barge on the Potomac River mm. where the bands would play, and, and we were there all the time. My father, uh, my parents were European, my father Russian, my mother German, and they were music lovers, and my father would take me to concerts, the Philadelphia Orchestra with Eugene Ormandy coming to Constitution Hall. Uh, mm. he, in, when I was in eighth grade, he took me to a New York Brass Quintet concert at the Library of Congress, and that literally, uh, I walked out of that a different person. I had never heard a trumpet sound like that. It changed everything for me. It was a, it was a little bit like if you see The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy walks through the, oh, world, yeah. the black, black and white of the color world. Yeah, yeah I remember I, that. I just, I just uh, uh, Alan Dean, who was on stage that night, uh, uh, who's still a great friend of mine, and uh, I, I talk to him now and then, and, and uh, yeah, it's it was and one what of those were, experiences. What were they playing? Well, it was a brass quintet recital. They they played serious brass quintet literature. Um, so anyway, in in high school, I was also an athlete. I was a varsity athlete in several sports, and so there was always that tension. But I practiced the trumpet hard, and I got a lot of experience. I played the Hummel Concerto with the Navy Band in Constitution Hall. I, I was did a lot of things, and then also was getting involved with jazz a lot. And I played in what we used to call soul bands. I guess you might call them funk bands now. We played James Brown and Wilson Pickett. and I got used to playing in groups that where people didn't read music, so that became an early thing that I got comfortable with, and that has stood me in good stead to this day. We can talk later about, you know, I played with a good number of rock and contemporary popular artists and that is always a world I'm comfortable working in. In any case I uh, went to the Eastman School of Music because it it offered you the chance to both play a symphony orchestra and brass quintet and the jazz ensemble and that was quite rare in those days. In those days believe it or not Juilliard had a sign in her hallway saying if they heard anyone if practicing of jazz could possibly get you suspended and and there was not many schools in the country which allowed that, and it was uh, not a good... Wait, practicing jazz? Well, believe it or not, it was forbidden in a lot of schools. And it's uh, ironic because many great jazz musicians have gone to Juilliard, but it was frowned upon to play there in the side of the building. And, and, it, and it's no disparagement. Juilliard is a great school. I was on the faculty there for 12 years, and I owe a great deal to Juilliard, but it's still a part of uh, that school's history in the past. Anyway, Eastman was one of the first, along with Indiana University, to, to allow musicians to study both. Then a great time at Eastman. While at Eastman, I started playing in the Rochester Philharmonic. So I was already playing with an orchestra starting my sophomore year. By the time I was a senior, I was playing in the faculty Eastman Brass Quintet. At the end of my senior year, I won an audition for the Kansas City Philharmonic, which in 1976 was a full-time orchestra, a little time off in the summer, but it was a ma considered a major symphony. I stayed there three years. I owe a great deal to that place, and I did a lot of jazz over there. I mean, uh, the Pops concerts with Kansas City Philharmonic 
Kansas City has a great jazz heritage. We played with Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald, Benny Goodman. I mean, it was really tremendous uh, lineup mm. of pops artists, and 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 these are serious jazz artists. It was really yeah. amazing. After three years, I I really did not want to be a, in a symphony full time. I love orchestral music. I'm playing it this at this festival tremendous. I do a lot, but I did not want to do it day by day by day. And uh, so I left, and I left without a job. People told me I was crazy. Uh, I was a, a, a moron to, to quit a, a secure job like that. Well, a, a few years later, the orcs are folded tragically. Uh, they have there's an orchestra now in Kansas City called the Kansas City, Kansas City Symphony, which is not the same as the Philharmonic, and it's a very very fine orchestra, and and they're doing quite well. But it had nothing in common with the old Kansas City Philharmonic, which unfortunately uh, disbanded. Anyway. I moved back to the D.C. area, and I was working during the day. I was working for a printing company, and I was also playing shows. And I played shows constantly in the theaters and, and practicing. And and anyway, I got a call to audition for the uh, American Brass Quintet in New York City. And uh, it's a long story. Uh, this is in the days before cell phones or even answering machines. They didn't exist. So uh, I was actually working in the printing company, and I was working in a Harris Offset Press, which is quite loud. I'm wearing a rubber apron and goggles and everything. And some guy yells, Gecker, there's a guy on the phone for you. And, and, and it was Ray Mace, who was an American brass quintet. And he, they had actually had auditions. In fact, they had already sort of decided on someone. It was someone from Los Angeles, I was told. But I had played and recorded with a guy who was in the Canadian brass, and he had said to Ray, you know, there's someone else you might want to listen to if you get the chance, and gave my name. So in those days, you just went to the phone book, and Gecker is not a common name. So he found my mom's number, and, you know, so he called my mom, and my, my mom gave him, like, three numbers. Well, you might catch him here or there, you know, whatever. <laughs> so he got, you know, and Ray's going, like, is this Chris Gecker? I said, yeah, and he says, are you the trumpet player? And I said, yeah. He says, where am I calling? Because it was like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. Anyway, we got uh, arranged for me to go up and take the audition, and uh, and then they offered it to me. So, you know, American Brass was a great group. I, I was a really fan of them. I had their records when I was in high school. So it was just uh, an amazing uh, event for me. And, and I very quickly got started in the New York studio scene. There was a strong studio scene there, uh, soundtracks, TV shows, jingles. In fact, I'll never forget, I, I walked into my first day. The contractor had heard about me, and he said, I want to try the young guy out. And I was sitting in between Jerome Ashby, who was associate principal horn in the New York Philharmonic, and on my other side was David Bardron, who was with Blood, Sweat, and Tears on trombone. And, you know, I was just thinking, wow, you know, two months ago I was, like, you know, doing something quite different. But anyway, it, everything worked out. I, very quickly I got a couple other jobs, principal trumpet of the Orchestra of St. Luke's, and uh, started playing a lot with Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, Chamber Society of Lincoln Center, eventually all the groups in New York, New York Philharmonic, quite a bit. So I was there almost 20 years, got married, had kids, uh, started looking. I was working like nonstop, I mean 24-7. New York's an unbelievable place for that, but once you have a family, things change, and uh I was, I was teaching at Juilliard School of Music, Manhattan School of Music, and uh, Columbia University. But everything is sort of adjunct in New York City because there's such a plethora of musicians. And uh, you can imagine the schools save a lot on overhead because, you know, you, uh, yes. that's the yes. dynamic of that. Sure. Anyway, so the University of Maryland approached me about a trumpet. And I, I didn't really know what a professorship even meant. And as they sort of slowly described it to me, you know, it, it just sort of really hit me really hard and... and uh, we thought about it for a while, and I then I 
accepted it. And but anyway, I, I I'm very grateful for Marilyn. Marilyn made a great situation for me. It's interesting that the like the serious music, like the uh, I, I can't remember what the brass quintet was in the D.C. area that really turned you on to music. Amer- uh, it was a New York brass quintet. But oh, the New York brass quintet. But it's interesting because me personally, and this is just my story, and I've heard. Many others say that what really turns them on to the trumpet is the Maynard Ferguson, the Doc Severinsen, the high, fast, and loud type of thing that appeals to the young kids. Um, well, sometimes the older kids. <laughs> well, it's it's awesome. I, I've played lead in big band, and uh, it's it's uh, it's unbelievable. And and I played a while with the Ellington Orchestra when Mercer Ellington was running it. And uh, I will say this, James, in a strange way, from my earliest days, I, I had a feeling of the, the way a trumpet played sounded when it played softly. So as a high school student, I would like rummage through the local public library, the LPs all the time. And, and one was uh, uh, Mahler Third Symphony with the New York Philharmonic Bernstein conducting. And the, and the third movement, there's this gorgeous offstage solo sounding from a distance of a post horn. And it's, it was Johnny Ware who later... Yes. Yes. Became a, a good friend of mine. In fact, in 1988, I was on, I recorded with Bernstein Mahler second, and Johnny and I were st- standing next to each other playing off stage. Anyway, that I play that over and over again, and that is an I- iconic record. It's it's been a big part of a lot of trumpet players' background. I heard uh, Gerard Schwartz, uh, unbelievable. The the Age of Splendor was a record for uh, playing Italian music from the late. Uh, early 1600s, um, just trumpet, bassoon, and harpsichord. So delicate, so nuanced. I mean, I, I literally wore that record out. I had to buy a second copy. And then, uh, and not just, but also in jazz, like Bobby Hackett, uh, soft cornet, kind of beautiful um, Rain Ants, who played with Duke Ellington. There's a record called Blue Surge from 1938, and, and the opens with a very soft cornet. And I just play that over and over again. So, yes, I love, I believe me, I heard Doc and all that kind of stuff, and it's still thrilling. But I just had a special kind of uh, inside feeling for the way a trumpet sounds when it's played softly. Hmm. So, anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's very interesting that because the trumpet is always has this stigma of being the, the loud, like you said, you went to that first concert and all you could hear was the trumpet. So you said, well, I'm going to play that. Yeah. But in my experience and from the people that I've spoken to, the real ability you you can't master it unless you can play soft yeah and and i I have friends who are pilots for instance and and they tell me that the the most difficult skill as a pilot is to fly a plane slowly Hmm. the plane is is at its least efficient when it's slow the trumpets too if you're if you're a strong trumpet player if you crescendo into the high register the the trumpet actually increases in efficiency it gets more compressed and it, it just becomes this sort of streamlined very efficient uh, uh, instrument. Descending, it's like uh, it's losing compression and it's losing stability. So, you know, you, you never have a rough takeoff on an airplane, generally, but the t- landings are often quite rough. <laughs> and huh. and as, uh, if someone goes to flight school, they spend a lot more time learning how to, to land the darn things. When you're saying descending, you're talking about the volume? Or the Both lo- volume and tessitura. If, if you're decrescendoing in the low register, your trumpet is losing more and more efficiency. To, so to control it mm. is a great art. So with students, when, when they're practicing going into the low register, they should play nice and full. That keeps their efficiency a little bit more manageable. But they're eventually going to have to be play very soft. And there have been several instances where in major orchestras, 
trumpet players were let go because they had difficulty playing low and soft. Like Beethoven Violin Concerto has a, has a second trumpet part, which is just, just playing low concert aids below the staff, but for something like 17 or 18 measures, just tonguing very softly. Do, do, do. It's very exposed. There's an old saying in the in the major orchestra field. It's it's like one of those sayings which is not completely true, but it has a lot of meaning. They say you you win your job playing big and you keep your job playing small. Hmm. And, and it's it's often the the slow, soft, low stuff that is most dangerous. The interview that I'm about to mention hasn't published on this podcast yet. In fact, yours is probably going to go after this one. But I interviewed John Holt at. Uh, North Texas, a couple of weeks ago. And he told me that the first thing that, at least one of the components of the audition process, and this is at all levels, undergraduate, graduate, doctoral, whatever, is you need to play a G scale starting on a low G up to the G on top of the staff. And if you can't do that, it doesn't matter what else you can do, but if you can't do that, they're not going to take you. Well, there are several major orchestras that do the same thing with a C scale two octaves mm-hmm. and S on a C trumpet and play in quarter note about 80 from low C to high C, articulate quarter notes. And then you, you once you hit the high C, you stop for 15, 20 seconds, and then you have to enter on the high C and come back down, how evenly that mm-hmm. can be played. And you, I don't know, you've probably interviewed or certainly you know Al Vizzuti, um, possibly the most you know flexible trumpet player yeah. you know. On yeah, Earth, absolutely. And Alan, Alan is a good friend of mine. He he has said a number of times that the the true test of flexibility on trumpet is the ability to articulate on you know the lowest notes with nuance and and complete freedom. A lot, a lot of times the trumpet may be able to slur all over the place, but when they get really low, to be able to da 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 da, you know, very difficult. And and he he likes to point to that as being a true test of flexibility. And I, and I found that to be true with my students as well. <laughs> You know, the first time I ever heard your name, Chris, was, I think it was in 2008, and I had just arrived at the Army Band at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And in their library, they had a method book that was written by you. And I don't know if you recall it. I don't even remember the name of it, honestly. It's been so long. But I do still remember a couple of the exercises in it, and I I do play them occasionally. But I remember... And this is just to so you can identify which one it is. But at the very end, you had the um, it's a Bach piece written for oboe that you put on the end of it. Do you remember which book this is? That's called Endurance Drills, and I had it. It has five Bach transcriptions in the in the okay. back. Yes. So the book is titled Endurance Drills. Yes. Let me give you a little background on that, James. I never have ever uh, sort of set out to write a book that. In the early 80s, I'm running around New York, playing everywhere, and I, and I always had a lot of my own exercises. I, I did, when I was in high school, I, I did not, was not able to take a weekly private lesson. So I, I, I took some very meaningful lessons, but they were not regular. And I got in the habit of writing a lot of my own exercises. That I would think of a problem. I'd say, what if I hit a high note loud and all of a sudden have to put, hit, play a low note? soft. And then I would say, okay, now I'm going to make that into an exercise. So I had piles of my own exercises. So in New York, I was like running around with, and I was teaching. Uh, when I first got to New York, I, my first college teaching job was out at Brooklyn College. And I was, you know, 27 at the time. So I, I all these exercises. So Mark Gould, dear friend of mine, he's principal trumpeter of the Met and uh, should be known to, by every trumpeter. And uh, 
he had seen these, and, and he called up Charles Colin, head of Charles Colin Publications, and said, you know, you should print these. So I get a call from them and say, we'd like to print these exercises. So I, I said, oh, fine. And to be honest, my first thought was, well, gee, now I, I won't have to go to Kinko's anymore. They're going to make all my copies for me. <laughs> and that, that book is now, you know, close to 40 years old. It was called Articulation Studies. And it included some etudes and some duets. And then there's been a series of them since then. But in each case, and and just last year, one came out called Focal Point Exercises, which I'm getting a lot of feedback from trumpeters also overseas on. And I can talk about that a little bit. But in no case did I ever sit down, I'm going to write a book. It was just like, I'm just spinning out these exercises. And, and that, you know, Dr. Charles Colin is sadly gone now. I'll always be very grateful for him because I was like an unknown and he was so nice to me. And so, and you remember people who are nice to you when you don't have anything necessarily to offer them back. You know, that's, yes, those are real I, trends. Yeah. But so Alan and Liz, Alan, his son and, and Liz, uh, they run there and they have a, just kind of a standing offer. If I, every number of years, if I have a stack of exercises, they'll just print them for me. And, and so for instance, endurance drills was almost a continuation of articulation studies. And it was actually, Alan, who came up with the title, so I didn't even title it. So the book is basically you just scratching your own itch. I'm trying to improve. You know, I, I'm still trying to, you know, thinking myself, like the book came out 24 etudes, which is two in every key. And I wrote it during a, a time when I was getting ready to do a bunch of solo recitals. And and that's been circulated widely. And But they're all written for me. I mean, they, when I, I still practice them. When I play these etudes, I'm getting the physical and musical feedback I need. I mean, it's like a mirror you hold to yourself. And, and, I'm, and I, I believe me, I often fall short, but that's the process of practicing and, and, and trying to improve. So all those books are just literally, I get, you're right, I'm scratching itch or, you know, it's trying to still improve. Well, sometimes I see books written and I wonder what motivation does someone have to write a method book? Because there's so many. Yeah. And there's so many that you can go to. Maybe they want to have make their own name but more popular whatever i don't know maybe i you know i don't sell them i mean if someone calls me and asks me i just tell them well they have to get them from colon or a q press now in canada will sell them too but it's i'm not in it as a business thing in fact yeah. you know i don't i can't really tell you i think now and then i get a royalty check but you know it just doesn't matter i, I don't really think of it that way i don't what at the, my university they've often given me like a merit raise uh, when a stuff gets published or cds come out so it all washes out in the end, but I'm not like in business. The same with required two solo CDs come out this past year, but I don't own them. I have one copy of each or, you know, sort of like that. So if people want them, I'm, I'm just, I'm not able to get them to them myself. I understand. You know, I'm kind of interested in, you, you've been around for a while and I'm just kind of curious if you could share some of the physical aspects of playing because it's very different to play as a younger man. Just as you get older and your body changes, can you just talk a little bit about how the physicality has changed for you? What adjustments have you had to make as you've grown older? What's well, a terrific question. And I never, basically never play with a trumpeter my age. I mean, uh, there, was a di there was a time, Jim, when I was the youngest player on any gig, and now I'm always the oldest. So this is the way life works sometimes. And I'm, I'm far beyond the years where most trumpet players sort of you know, start withdrawing. And it that day will come for me, too. I mean, it comes for everybody. Right. Mother Nature is the ultimate victor in everything, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Trumpet is by far the most strenuous instrument. It's not the hardest instrument. It's actually relatively simple to play the trumpet, but as thing, all, all things balance out, trumpet is by far the most strenuous. And in fact, th- this stuff has been tested in labs with sensors and, you know, mm-hmm. the, and in fact, the second most strenuous instrument in terms of wear and tear on your body is oboe. The, all the other brass instruments come far behind that. I've heard the same thing. Trumpet is the only instrument that you traumatically, our, our injuries are traumatic. Hernias, uh, ripped nerves, broken blood vessels, uh, there's a plethora of them. On oboe, it's rare, but now and then you'll meet an oboist with a neck hernia. Every other instrument, basically all the injuries are long uh, or overuse injuries. And they're quite serious. Carpal tunnel, uh, uh, arthritis, tendonitis, dystonia. These are, it's a little bit like comparing a sprinter with a long distance runner. So the trumpeters are like the sprinters who we can rip a tendon, uh, sprain a hamstring, uh, tear an ACL, come up lame. The trumpeters do that. The, the long distance runners... They they get just pounded over miles and miles, and they will get their other you know plantar fasciitis and 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 other injuries, but they're overuse injuries. So it's important. That's why you know it, isn't it curious that if we use a no, the term high note trumpeter, everyone knows what that means. You don't use that word with any other instrument. There's no such thing as a high note flutist or a high note violinist, even high note horn or high note trombone. It doesn't exist. Why is that? It's because the the trumpet. Even an audience that may not know this literally has a subconscious feeling that that's a, it's a risky endeavor. So you go to a, a salsa gig, the Latin band is playing the screaming trumpets. There may many people in the audience are really excited by that, and the excitement part of that, I firmly believe, is that in our cultural subconscious, there's a sense that that's a slightly dangerous thing to do. Playing high notes is difficult on every instrument. It's difficult to play good high notes on a violin, a flute, a clarinet, but it's not the same physical tightrope. What does it mean? Well, I can still play as high as I've ever played. I I have other issues. Uh, Eyesight, uh, my hearing in my left ear has been very damaged over the years. I I played one show on Broadway where the drum set was right off my left ear, and I I didn't protect myself. And you're talking about a, a show that goes on a year and a half, two years. Of course, I'm taking off and doing other things too. But um, when this hearing loss happened in my left ear, uh, I went to the doctor and, and I sat down with a very prominent ear specialist from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. And he said, it's just decibel damage. And l- luckily, my right ear is a hearing version of 2020, so I can still function. But it's interesting, with a damaged left ear, I can't triangulate. So if I can, I'm out in the middle of a parking lot and someone calls my name, I have no idea which direction. So because, you know, the, the two ears were, will triangulate the sound. And I just have a one-dimensional right ear, which I can still, I'm fine with recording and playing concerts. I, I, I'm I in my late 60s now. I, like, I have a long history with the Brandenburg Concerto, which is such a high piece. And I performed it over a hundred times, recorded it, and the recording it was done in 2000. I'm very happy with it. It's won some awards and stuff, and it came out really great. But I, my last Brandenburg was probably, it was probably 62. And I played it, but it was just like, this is, it's enough, you know, I get that sort of feeling. And there, there have been other, I've, I've stopped theater work. You know, I, I've been my whole life very active in playing for Broadway show type things, not just in New York, but other places. And I've stopped that. The wear and tear on the body. I, I was asked uh, 
this year, in fact, to do a bunch of work in Baltimore at the Hippodrome Theater. And I just told the contractor, this is a part of my plane I'm going to take a step back from. And there'll be other little things. I, I'm playing more jazz than I did when I was younger. And uh, it's jazz is a deep and serious art. It is America's classical music. It's, it's our contribution to world culture. And uh, I consider... It, I consider it, you know, Duke Ellington, Louis, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, Miles Davis, I consider that classical music. In, in other words, it's beyond fad or someone's opinion. You, you don't have to like it. I mean, it's, it's fine if you don't like it, but it's achieved a, a stature in our culture, which is beyond debate. Just like a composer. I mean, you don't have to like Haydn or Debussy, but they're there. So, so jazz is very demanding, but it's different. In other words, uh, if you're playing a Richard Strauss tone poem... If I'm playing Alpine Symphony, which I just did a year and a half ago, that high D it has to be played at that split second that it's in the music. You know, you don't have a choice. <laughs> and and if I'm doing a jazz thing, I can choose, you know, where I'm going to play more. So it's a little different. It's, it's not easier. It's not easier. It's like a left brain, right brain thing. I remember reading once Dizzy Gillespie was shown one of his solos written out. And Dizzy Gillespie was had the most freakish technique anyone could imagine. So when he was shown one of his solos written out, he said, well, I can't play that. And the person said, well, you just did. <laughs> but so it's like it's like comparing a figure skater who might polish a routine over months and months and years versus a hockey player who, for whom every fast break is a little bit different and has to be you know, like Wayne Gretzky where they had to create every time down the ice. So it's literally using a different side of the brain. It, it is um, truly composition but as like duke ellington said it's composition at the interval of a split second a lot of people think that improvising is just sort of messing around but the great jazz improvisers are truly composers a, a solo by miles davis his good solos have the structure and the integrity of a piece that a composer might have worked on for a long time speaking of jazz and i'm glad that we circled back to this topic because i want to ask about that policy at juilliard why is it that, in, in your opinion, from your perspective, why would they have that policy or just kind of that stigma? Why, would, why did that exist there? Well, it existed all over that jazz somehow was, uh, would harm someone who was studying Mozart or Haydn or Beethoven. And it's, it's just a mistake. And it's been corrected. Jazz, uh, Juilliard yeah. now has extremely st- strong commitment to jazz. And, and every school that has included jazz in a strong way has benefited in every way. It, it's... I mean, every, anything we talk about can be done for good or for bad, but if a good jazz program is put into place, it benefits everybody. And it's also ill-educated. The, the Mozart, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, these were great improvisers. You know, the, the art of improvising is firmly in our culture. It was only in the early 20th century that musicians started getting this kind of worshipping the literate score. You know, Franz Liszt used to, in his solo recitals, he would be playing Chopin's B minor sonata, and then in the slow movement, he would just take off for 10 minutes and then sort of come back. And that was celebrated in those days. But then there was a, like a shift of opinion, and the, in the early 20th century, among uh, some very powerful musicians, they considered that excess, and that they considered that that was doing something bad to music, and they could have been right. Like most things, it's probably reaction, counter-reaction, and, and when we swing in back and forth, we, we lose a lot of the balance. But the truth is that that great musicians improvise and and should be able to to create without necessarily having to look at a sheet of paper. And that doesn't mean just jazz. I mean, it can be any kind of music. In fact, 
it's, it's quite possible to explore improvisation in, in idiom like Viennese music from you know the 1790s or something like that too. So anyway, James, I think the answer was it was a prevailing opinion that jazz would somehow harm. I, I had a teacher in high school who, when he found out I was listening to Miles Davis records, stopped talking to me. It was, that was a, a, a just a prevailing attitude that was around. You know, his attitude of, well, you're, now you're going to start playing out of tune, your tone is bad. It, you know, it's not out of tune. And Miles Davis had one of the most distinctively colorful, expressive tones in the history of music. Yet this was an attitude a lot of people had. So it would damage your perception of like real music or i mean how, how how would it be damaging well you you just said that sentence in such a way was like how could anyone believe this but <laughs> what you said is literally what was said <laughs> yes wow so like if you listen to jazz it's going to affect your ability to play mozart who was if ever there was a composer who wrote in the flow it was him same was said about a lot of things. I mean, yeah. parents would say uh, before that, if if you listen to Ellis Presley, you're going to turn into a d- delinquent. If you listen to the Beatles, you're going to. If you listen to Bob Dylan, you're going to become a pothead. You know, whatever this. Was. So this stuff was said all the time. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the future. We've talked about the past. We talked about your own story and uh, how you've adjusted physically. What What do you see the next ten years going for Chris Gecker, trumpet wise? Well, I, I'm looking at, I mean, sometime in the next 10 years, I will sort of, on paper, retire. I will never stop playing the trumpet. I would just always have that trumpet with me nearby. I mean, no matter where I am. It's just a question of uh, withdrawing on my own terms. I mean, I, I, I have a lot coming up this year. Like in January, playing Mahler Fifth is one of the big, big symphonic works. And uh, I played it many times. And, you know, I'm looking forward to it. It's a piece I enjoy doing. You don't want to play it in such a way that people are saying like well that you know that's too bad so uh, i'll keep my eye on myself as it gets closer well i'm sorry what do you mean by that's too bad like most musicians go on too long i mean it's just, okay i okay. mean in every field i mean look at willie mays to many people the greatest all-around baseball player who's ever lived the last year with the new york mets he was dropping fly balls you know it was just like Look at Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali toward the end. I mean, it's right. just sad. You know, it's it's hard to do, but it's what I'm hoping is that I'll leave on my own terms, you know, and leave before anyone says that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, what I'm doing is sort of a, a, a you know, a, this, you know, I said the Brandenburg, I said theater work. Uh, strangely enough, I've got a lot of solo recording coming up, but solo recording is actually one of the easier things because you're totally in control of all the things. Uh, you know, I can control all the all the variables. Uh, you know, something like the theater, for instance, you're not in control. You're you're like a rental mule, and you're getting used. You know, in this show, and it's like they point and they say jump, and you say how high. So it's yeah. you know, so that sort of thing. I'm I'm getting away from. How what's the process of preparing for a solo recording? First of all, it it has two. Two types. I mean, I get hired to do a fair amount. Like usually by composers, I do a lot of work in contemporary composers. So they'll they'll engage me to record a piece by theirs. And uh, so I, I, you know, first of all, I have to agree to do it. And and uh, I and I love working with composers. It's a big big part of my career. And I've had a lot of pieces written for me. And uh, I'm going to do a premiere of a new sonata in in November, which is, I think, anticipated by a lot of people. It's composer Eric E. Wazen, who's up at, at Juilliard. So his his first sonata was written in 1995 for me, and I premiered it, recorded it, and it by some 
accounts with ASCAP and the International Trauma Guild statistics, it's either the, on any given year, the, either the most performed sonata or one of the top three or four. And, and I've been talking about years for writing a second one, and he's taken a few stabs. He wrote part of Sonata Number no. 2, which I premiered in Japan like three years ago, but he withdrew it. And so anyway, he's going to come up with what he says will be his Sonata Number no. 2 in September, and I'll have two months to, to learn it and premiere it in November, and I'll do it, be doing it at, in the D.C. area and also a couple days later in New York City. And I'll be recording that at some point. So, so there's there's that. And then there's also if if uh, I decide myself I want to record something. But to be honest, James, that's also tends to be music by contemporary composers. I've recorded a lot of traditional repertoire, like the Brandenburg and things like that. But I have never viewed myself as a trying to promote a solo career. I, I'm too bit. I mean, it's just I'm happy with what I'm doing. And so I, I have played the Haydn and the Hummel Concerto a number of times and, and recorded things like Quiet City and stuff like that. But I don't see that. I'm not looking for places to play that sort of thing. You know, that sort of thing, I'll get hired to play with an orchestra or something. I'll just go do that. So and when you're making a recording and you've already said that, you know, the quote, serious music is what first turned you on. And it sounds to me like that's still something that really, really motivates you is, is the music that, um, well, most people would call it a bit obscure. It's certainly not going to be on the top 40 of, right. uh, of the charts anytime soon. Like, but Eric E. Wazen is a very, very niche composer. He, he uh, writes for a very s- specific demographic of musicians. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would agree with that. Though, though I've done, con- you know, I remember Woodstock on a chamber concert playing his quintet for trumpet and strings, and the and the audience was in a, stood in a line for an hour afterwards, just waiting to talk to him. And and these were not trumpet players. I mean, these were just people that really loved the music. Um, I did a back. I I've done recording with some pop people, and I I remember do, once I was getting ready to do a recording for Sting, and and the producer came on and he said something like, you know. This record is not going to be heard by 500 people. <laughs> he said, "I just want to make sure you all know that," and it's true. I mean, you, when you're in the pop world, it's it's the 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 numbers are so different, and that's a world I'm comfortable in as well. I don't really separate serious and unserious. To me, it's all serious, and it's also all fun. I have a lot of fun playing music by composers that I know. If I'm happen to be recording something Sting or David Bowie or whatever, I that's serious work to me too, and and. Uh, so I tend not to make those uh, differences that much. I don't really keep an eye on the audience. Uh, I, I'm eternally grateful for anyone who listens, and I love connecting with audiences, but numbers don't really mean anything to me. I, you can have a great career as a musician and not be uh, reliant on the ticket box right. office thing. You know, right. Like a lot of pop music funds a lot of... Cla- you, you be, I mean, I could go into detail at some other time, but, but uh, the money that a pop star generates a lot of it goes into uh other areas of music which gets supported and and the the music by contemporary composers needs support it's going to be there no matter what and and uh it deserves to be supported and there are a lot of people who it means a lot to how do how does a record on the on the pop scene support less less well-known music well there's a there it's, there's a lot through the union uh there's a uh uh, special payments fund that union musicians get every year. Uh, it's related to the amount of recording they do, 
And uh, I, I probably should not speak too much in detail because I might be wrong about some of it. But, but what I have been told is that the record companies that are dealing with great uh, mass selling artists, they contribute a lot to these funds. So, oh, I see. Yeah. Interesting. I never knew that. It's c- quite common among sort of conservatory trained musicians to look at what something is popular and say, oh, that's so simple. My thing is, okay, well, why don't you do it? Because if you did it, you'd immediately be rich. It's actually quite hard. Some of the easiest things on the surface are the most difficult. Absolutely. Such as playing soft and low on a trumpet. Yeah. It looks easy. It's only got three buttons. And, you know, we have more rests than other people. So they figure, oh, you have so much time off. But it's directly related to how strenuous the instrument is. A Mahler symphony is like usually depending on who's conducting, 70 minutes long, and the trumpet part is usually 10 or 11 minutes of actual playing. But after the concert, the audience going out often is like, oh, the trumpet's this, the trumpet's that. We we don't play that much in terms of like the density, but the impact of the trumpet is quite hard. Mm-hmm. And it's and if, if the other instruments are playing a lot more constantly, it's because they're able to. So it's like sports. People mm-hmm. look at Wimbledon and say, oh, my God, how can they play a five-set final? Because tennis allows you to do that. If you're playing linebacker on a football team, of course, and and it's a two-hour game, and the coach films all your plays and shows you all your plays at the end of the game, six minutes. You were in motion six minutes that game. Why? Because that's all you can do. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and the, the tennis player and the football player can't trade places. I mean, if, if the football go- player goes over and plays a tennis match, they'll lose every point. If the tennis player moves over and plays the football, he'll lose his life. So it's it's just a different uh, universe. <laughs> if you're ever on the sideline at a pro football game, your first thought is is like, uh, I'm surprised someone isn't really injured on every play. Act, and then your second thought is, I'm surprised someone isn't killed on every play. I mean, it's unbelievable up close. <laughs> How violent it is. It's so... But, but they're built for that. Ironically, the padding and the way that the gear has worked has allowed them to hit each other harder. You know, in the old days, you know, Gerald, President Gerald Ford, you know, with the, the helmets with no face guard, they actually were not able to hit each other as hard, you know. Because hmm. nowadays right. the helmet is so uh, like a like a guided missile, you know. Well, you, you remove that remove that barrier yeah. and you lose that fear of injuring them. That's, huh. Well, it's like if you watch rugby. I mean, rugby, they're slamming each other, but they don't slam it to each other with the abandon that, that you do in American football. Because they're not padded the same way. Right. That's that's fascinating. But we all have this built-in aversion to hurting other people. But when you take but you, when you put all those all those pads on and the helmet, you just say, "Ah, he's going to be okay. I can hit him as hard as I want." And I'm not I'm not sure every football player does have an aversion like that, but I I don't want to speak. We're getting off on philosophy here, so it might be time to wrap up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We've been speaking with Chris Gecker. Uh, we can find him on the web at chrisgeckertrumpet.com. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again sometime. I hope so too, James. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It was great to see you again and great to talk with you. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb, signing off.